Welcome to Tuesday Morning Bible Study. We're glad that you've joined us this morning on a Tuesday morning early to study God's Word together. The Word of God, the psalmist tells us in Psalm 119, is a delight to the soul. God's Word is a counselor for the wise, a comfort in affliction, a lamp in the darkness. The psalmist calls God's Word our heritage forever. When we gather on Tuesday morning to study God's Word, it is our goal, it is our goal to hear, not from me, but from God Himself, and in hearing from God in His Word, that you would also hear, once again, the incredulous claim that God loves you, uh, that God is for you, that He is with you this week. We are in the Psalms this semester. The Psalms teach us what it is to... uh, participate, engage in the disciplines of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the disciplines of loving God and of being loved by God, of knowing him, of deepening our relationship with him. We're going to turn to Psalm 90 this morning, and you'll have it there on your handout. You can see it's written there. You can turn there with me in your Bibles. Psalm 90 is often classified as a wisdom psalm. A wisdom psalm, it's a psalm that's meant to teach us how to live wisely, to live well, to live skillfully within the borders of reality that God has marked out for us. Now, a quick note on this psalm. Uh, You'll notice the superscription credits this particular psalm to Moses as a prayer. It's called a prayer of Moses. Okay, that makes it unique. Um, About half the psalms are credited to King David. Um, who came around uh, a, lot, lo- uh, a lot later than Moses, <laughs> right? A large number of the Psalms are credited to other people, to Asaph. Asaph and his family were appointed by David to, to lead God's people in worship. If you go to PCPC, he was kind of like the J. Marty of, of his day, I guess, right? Some are appointed to the sons of Korah. Some are appointed to, are given to Solomon. This is the only Psalm assigned to Moses, which also makes it perhaps the oldest psalm in the Psalter. It kicks off book four of the Psalms, or five books of Psalms. Book four of the Psalms kicks off in Psalm 90. Of the eight mentions of Moses in the whole Psalter, seven of those eight are here in the shortest book, Psalm, uh, uh, book four, Psalms 90 to 106. Why is this important? So that you can impress your friends with all the Bible trivia you just gained, Right? Now, if you know the story of Moses, if you know the story of, uh, of he and the people of God sojourning in the wilderness, then you'll hear this prayer, I think, uh, not simply as a general prayer about life. You'll hear the prayer instead um, as the prayer of a man who is part of a generation under judgment for sin. The prayer of a man in a generation faced with a very pressing task of having to account for their days, to number their days, because their lives were so circumscribed by the judgment of God. Here is inspired prayer, inspired counsel born from the immediate experience of Moses as the leader of God's people. Let's read Psalm 90 together now and learn from Moses as he reckons or as he faces his own mortality. Psalm 90, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. 
Moses prays, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. For the mountains were brought forth, wherever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust. And you say, return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with flood, a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, in the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you. Our secret sins are in the light of your presence. All of our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are like are, are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. If their span is but toil and trouble, they are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So, Lord, teach us to number our days, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Let me pray for us this morning. Uh, Father, Moses offers us wisdom. Um, if, we, if we would be so, uh, so brave <laughs> to ask you to teach us to number our days. And so that's what we pray. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would teach us how to account for the days you've given us, and that in doing so, you would give us wisdom this morning as men made in your image. Lord, we pray that we would see the graciousness and kindness of a Savior um, whom Moses hints at, at, this pace, at the, in this passage, in this prayer. And we pray, Father, that all of our days, all of our years, would be lived in light of who you have been to us, the boundless God becoming bounded that we might live. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so um, uh, what would you do? What would you do if you knew that your life was coming to an end um, shortly? So say you have three months to live. Health isn't a concern. You have three months. That's all you have left. How would you spend those final three months? Right? A quick Google search turns up all kinds of predictable answers. This is apparently a common way to prompt college essays. The funny thing about this is if you, if you shrink the timeline from three months to, say, three days, the answers get more and more criminal. Like you'll see a repeated answer is steal an ambulance and take a joyride in a downtown city with the sirens on. That came up on multiple occasions. Interest is in ambulance stealing. So I thought about that myself. I think it's only fair if I ask you a question that I had to think about it. And I went back and forth, and I thought on one hand, look, if I had a short time to live, I would probably, I'd probably just do my ordinary routine. 
I would live as, as I've already been living and do the, the very thing I've already been doing, but I would do it probably with more attentiveness, uh, more zeal, maybe, um, more intentionality. I think that's probably the mature answer. Um, in the spirit of the apocryphal Martin Luther quote, which goes, even if I knew that tomorrow the world would fall to pieces, I would still today plant my apple tree. In other words, I would choose ordinary faithfulness because that is, that is good and that is right. But there's a bigger immature part of me that says, let's refine the bucket list. Let's cash in all the frequent flyer miles. I love you guys on Tuesday mornings, but I'm not coming back. <laughs> there is golf to be played in Scotland. I'm not even really good at golf, but I've got three, three months to rectify that a little bit, maybe. Um, it's, I'm going to do everything I can that I want to do before my time is up. It's a great book that came out a few years ago called When Breath Becomes Air. When Breath Becomes Air. It's written by a young Stanford-trained neurosurgeon. It appeared, first of all, as the beginning of an essay in the New York Times. But he went ahead and wrote it out as a book. It's a short book. Um, his name's Paul. Paul is, was younger than me. He died at 37. He found out he had incurable cancer at 35 top of his field was, um, uh, uh, was working on the staff of Stanford, at that point training other surgeons in neurosurgery. Um, young, uh, newly married, had a young, uh, a, a young child as well, his whole life seemingly spread out before him. It's a beautiful book. It's a sad book, but it's a beautiful book. And it's interesting to note that, that when he begins reckoning with his death, it's not to sort of scientific formulation that he turns to probe the light of his own mortality in the face of incurable cancer. He actually turns to poetry, uh, he turns to literature, and he turns to God. He comes back to God, to want to know God and and think about God in light of the reality that he's going to die and die soon. Why do I tell you that? It's not unusual that when death comes into view, life takes on a keener focus, and the philosophic task becomes more urgent. What is the philosophic task? The philosophic task is the search for meaning and wisdom. We begin to ask questions like, who am I? What is meaningful? How will I be judged? What is it that constitutes true happiness? The great Stoic philosopher Epictetus, uh, uh, in concert with, I would say, all the famous cosmologists of the ancient world, said that the reality of death is really the ultimate motive for seeking wisdom, for only man. Man is the only creature that is aware that his days are actually numbered. We're the only ones aware that our days are numbered, that the inevitable is not an illusion, and that we must consider what we're supposed to do with our brief existence while we're here. If it's true that the prospect of death sort of makes us into philosophers of some sort, it's also true that the wisdom psalms Psalms like Psalm 90, Psalm 1, Psalm 37, 49, 73, 112, 119. Those are some of the wisdom psalms. The wisdom psalms show us how to be good philosophers. How to answer and ask and probe those questions in light of who God is. So how do they do that? What is it that makes a a wisdom psalm? You know, I thought about this, that that I think if we classify the other psalms, they're kind of self-explanatory. If I said, you know, this is a psalm of lament, you would assume that the psalm is a psalm about what? Mourning, right? Sadness. If it's a psalm of thanksgiving, it's things to be thankful for. If it's a psalm of of penitence, it's things to confess. 
What is it that makes a psalm of lament? Aren't, I mean, aren't all psalms filled with wisdom? <laughs> yes. But wisdom psalms in particular do two things. Wisdom psalms help us to confront, to stare at, to look at the borders of reality marked out for us. And they teach us how to live well within those borders. The wisdom psalms primarily are concerned with two subjects. Number one, the subject of your end. The end of the righteous, the end of the wicked, the end of men. What happens when we think about our end? And secondly, the wisdom psalms are concerned with the word of God as the path, the character, the shape of what true wisdom consists in. So for example, just for a moment, Psalm 1, you're, you know, maybe you know Psalm 1. We did study it earlier this semester. I don't imagine that you completely remember everything that's said there, okay? It's okay, it wouldn't hurt my feelings. But Psalm 1 says, you will come across men in your life that are wicked. You're going to come across men in your life who are, who are wicked, who mock the truth, who are indulgent in sin. That's a boundary. That's a reality that it wants you to confront. And then Psalm 1 says, do not be in deep relationships with them. That's the boundary line. Don't be in deep relationships. doesn't say don't love them, but don't cast your lot with them. There is the boundary to live well. What is the boundary line that Psalm 90 wants us to confront? It's the boundary line we've already talked about. It's the boundary of death. And death in the wisdom literature, in Ecclesiastes, in Proverbs, in, um, in, in Psalms like this one, in Job, death is the ultimate boundary line for us. So, in this psalm, verse 3, Moses says what? He says, confront the fact that you're dust. That we're dust. From dust that we've come, he doesn't say it here, dust we come, but we will be returned to dust, he says. Verse 5, Moses says that, that we are swept away as with a flood. Do you think Moses knows something about watching people swept away in a flood? There's, like a, there's an image there that he's seen. <laughs> we are swept away as with a flood. We are like a grass that is renewed in the morning that fades and withers in the evening. Yes, in verse 10, Moses concedes, you might make it 70 years. Congratulations, some of you already have. You might make it 80 years if you drink smoothies. If you do Camp Gladiator, you might make it 100 years, okay? But at some point, at some point, you need to reckon with the fact that you are a small blip on the radar screen of time's expanse. And as the preacher of Ecclesiastes muses, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come we will all have been long forgotten. We are like a dream, Moses says. Like a dream. It's quite the boundary line to ruin a nice cup of coffee on a Tuesday morning. I hope this is encouraging to you. <laughs> what is the point? Well, I want you to listen to what David says in Psalm 16.6. It's not on your, your handout, but it's one of my favorite, favorite lines in the Psalms. David says this, he says, the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. That's kind of what we're after in the wisdom psalms. We are after confronting the boundary lines and learning to say, as David could say, that those have fallen for me in pleasant places, right? Now, the boundary lines that David is talking about here are almost certainly the tribal boundaries that God had used to circumscribe the nation of Israel. But they were also sacramental and that those boundary lines signified the trust that was required to live in all the boundaries that God had given his people. 
To be able to say, oh Lord, you have set my boundaries, the boundaries of time, the boundaries of my attention, of my calling, of my vows, of the space that I can inhabit. You have set the boundaries. Help me to see those boundaries. Help me to respect those boundaries. Help me to trust that according to your love, they have fallen for me in pleasant places. That's what we're after. And so Moses says, let's face it. Let's face this boundary of death. Let's learn to number our days and see what wisdom God might have for us in store as we confront it well. So let me outline the psalm for you generally this morning, and then I want to sketch out three implications and release you to talk about death at your tables this morning. <laughs> All right, here's the psalm thematically in three parts. So part one in verses one through two. Verses one through two, Moses begins with extolling the boundlessness of God. He's eternality. You see it there, Lord, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. The same boundaries that apply to us don't apply to him. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Part two, thematically, is the boundedness of us. The subject is our own weakness and frailty. This is not weakness and frailty because God has created us that way. It's weakness and frailty, you can see as you read, because of sin and judgment. That sin has so cast our lot as to be one of death. Uh, One in which judgment is a reality in our lives. One in which we are weakened and futility is our lot. Again, these are important for wisdom. I'll get to it. And then part three in the psalm is where the petitions start. And typically when you see petitions in a prayer, it's, oh God, these are the realities. You're boundless, I'm bounded. How do I live then? What do I ask for? What what, what do I need to sort of navigate these boundaries? So part three is, how do I live then? So those are the three parts. Okay, here are the implications, the outline I want to use this morning to draw for wisdom's sake. Here's number one. According to Moses, wisdom involves viewing our lives from the prospect of our deaths. Okay? According to Moses, wisdom means viewing your life from the prospect of your death. Number two, according to Moses, wisdom involves viewing your death from the prospect of your judgment. Viewing your death from the prospect of your judgment. And then finally, according to Moses, wisdom involves viewing your judgment from the prospect of God's favor. I'll say this one more time. Wisdom involves viewing our lives from the prospect of our deaths, viewing our deaths from the prospect of our judgment, viewing our judgment from the prospect, as Moses says, of God's favor. Let's take those in turn and think about what each one means for us. First, viewing our lives from the prospect of our deaths. This is at the heart of what Moses says in verse 12, what he wants us to confront. He says, O Lord, so teach us to number our days. That is kind of how it sounds. Lord, teach us to live in light of our own mortality. Now the verb to number our days, the meaning there is not just to look at your days on a calendar and literally to check them out. It's to account for your days. The word there, the idea is there is to steward your days, to make the best use of the time that God has given you, to think about time as an asset, a gift that God has given you. There's a recent story of Warren Buffett hosting um, a small dinner party for some up up-and-coming young uh, investors. And one of the young men asked uh, Mr. Buffett, he says, Mr. Buffett, what, is, what, what, is, what do you consider the greatest asset that you own? Of all the things that you own, all the businesses, all the companies, all the stakes, what do you consider to be the most important thing that you own that you deemed it most important, most urgent for you to protect at all costs? And, and Warren Buffett held up his calendar. And he flipped through the pages, and the young man could see that all the pages were blank. 
they were, they were almost universally blank. Maybe a few things written here, but almost universally blank. And he said, the greatest asset that I own is the time that I've not scheduled in these pages. And, and, and my most pressing task is to protect that time to make sure that gets invested wisely. Then he looked at the young man and said, whatever his name was, and said, look, I would give my entire net worth. Now, you know that's not small, right? I don't know what the markets are going to do today, but let's just say $80 billion, right? My entire net worth to go back and to be your age. That's a jarring, like, thought, right? That, like, that he values, like, being, being you, some of you, in your 20s and 30s, being you more than he does all that he's accomplished and all that he's acquired. But there's also something very obvious about that trade. He knows that time is an asset he cannot earn, he cannot negotiate, and he cannot multiply. All he can do is invest it wisely. To do his best to discern the difference between the trivial and the absolute essential and the time that God has given him left. That's what the prospect of our death can do for us. Help us to discern the difference between the trivial and the meaningful in terms of what you make of your days. You know, maybe you should put in hours upon hours to lower that handicap from 15 to 12. I'm, I, I'm just saying maybe you should. I'm not trying to be sarcastic. Or maybe you should think that when I die, those three shots and the time that it's taken to shave them off aren't quite as important as the time I could have spent mentoring someone or eating breakfast with my grandkids. I know you're thinking right now, I can do both those things on the golf course. <laughs> and that's true, and you're smarter. That's, wisdom is yours. I know this sounds morbid, but I heard um, Greg Thompson. Greg Thompson is, um, many, some of you know the name, some of you won't. He's a, he's a pastor, was a pastor um, in Virginia, a little bit older than I am, but I heard him say once that he has a picture of his tombstone with his name on it on his desk, on his office, to remind him of the urgency of accounting for his time. Now, I think that'll scare the children when they come in, so I'm not sure you should do that. But Moses says, whatever you have to do, remember that you're dust. Remember that you're moving towards dust. Number your days with the end in mind. It's not an asset you can multiply. Okay, that's number one. Think about your life with the end in mind. Number two, we have to learn to view our deaths with, uh, with the prospect of our judgment in view as well. So I think it's important to note that, that though Moses sees death here as instructive um, in helping us to live more intentionally, he also views death in a very, very, very negative light. Okay, is that clear in the passage to you? Let me read once again verses 7 through 9, so just to make sure that we see that. This is all together in the part about our frailty and weakness. Moses says, For we are brought an end, to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in light of your presence. For all our days pass away into your wrath. We bring our, ear, our years to an end like a sigh. What I want you to see there is for Moses, death and judgment or death and condemnation are inseparably linked. And you say, Chad, why is that important for us to see this morning? Well, it's important first of all because it means that there is accountability for what we do in life. Okay, let that sink in for a moment. There is accountability for what you do with your days. Moses doesn't say, number your days because YOLO, right? Because you only live once. No, he says, Lord, 
He says, Lord, teach me to number my days. There's a difference in that. Moses is saying, I need to know how to number my days because I'm not sure I'll do it well. I'm not sure that my bucket list is your bucket list. I'm not sure that what I think counts as success is what you think counts as success. Lord, teach me. Teach me how to, how to accord something, how to value something as meaningful from your word. I need to learn that practice because I can't trust myself to assign value where it goes. I'm going to be held responsible for how I do my days. And so, Lord, you teach me how to do it well. That's number one. The second reason it's important to see that judgment is connected with death is because the link between judgment and death teaches us how we are to relate to death. Now, there is a commonly held belief that for you to really confront death means that you learn to make peace with it. That's the brave thing to do. That's the courageous thing to do. You look into the abyss, and you yell at it. And you learn to accept it. A lot of this comes from the crowning achievement of ancient Greek philosophy known as Stoicism. The Stoics said basically, nature is God. Nature is God. We live in the divine order. There's nothing above that order. Nature is God. So make peace with your nature. Your nature is to die. It is the most natural thing, the most natural thing for you to die. Everybody's doing it, right? So just accept it and make peace with it. Make peace with the fact that you will go back into the cosmic stuff of the universe and you will live on fertilizing an oak tree somewhere. It is hard to read Moses here in Psalm 90 as saying, yeah, death is natural, just make peace with it. No, for Moses, death is the product of the wrath of God. It is judgment. Death is as much an aberration and deviate upon creation as is sin itself. Jesus confirms this in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says that death will be the last enemy that I come to defeat. If Jesus never makes peace with death, if it remains his own enemy, we never make peace with it either. You don't make peace with the enemies of Jesus if you're on his side. Now, why is that important? Because though we keep our death in view, we never, the Bible says, we never are supposed to just feel okay about it. Death is always unsettling. It is always unsettling. And as a brief pastoral aside, we should never, I think, we should never demand or expect that others who are suffering from the sting of death, that they make peace about it either. Nicholas Wolterstorff a Christian philosopher, I think I've read this before, on the tragic death of his young son in a mountain climbing accident, had some guidance to offer those who were trying to comfort him. He said, look, please don't say, don't come to me and say that it's not that bad, because it is. Death is awful. It is demonic. If you think your task as a comforter is to tell me that really all things considered, it's not that bad, you don't understand grief, you don't understand death, and you don't understand me. This has crept in a little bit to Christianity. I get why sometimes, because death really is, for Christians, and we'll talk about that, a step towards something that God has in store for us. But death in the Bible is not a peaceful repose from the travails of the world. It is accountability for the days that we've been given, and it's a curse. It's a judgment on the reality of a world that is in rebellion against God, a world that is not the way it's supposed to be, 
a world that, that Paul says in Romans 8 groans, groans until it is released in freedom by the grace of God. So, keep that in mind. Keep the end in mind for your days. Keep the reality that judgment is, is in view in terms of our death. And finally, the last thing I think Moses wants us to see is that we need to view our judgment from the prospect of God's favor. View our judgment from the prospect of God's favor. So, there is a big, big problem that Moses' prayer here presents to us. And here's the problem. Moses says, you're dust. Moses says, you're doomed to die in judgment and futility. Moses says that you'll be swept away like a dream. This is the boundary you have to confront. It's a certain mortality. This is the end. You are dust, he says. And yet, in verse 2, Moses says that God is our everlasting refuge. Right? In verse, oh gosh, I lost the rest of my pages. I'm going to wing this, all right? Sorry. I have no idea what happened to him. Verse 2, Moses says that, uh, that God is an everlasting refuge. I think it's verse 14. Now I don't know for sure, but somewhere around there. Moses says that God's love is what? Is a steadfast love. The, the word there is the, is the word has said. It's covenant love. God's love is steadfast. Another point there, somewhere in the passage, in that end point, right? Moses says that you will establish, the very last verse, you will establish the work of my hands. The word established there is the word of permanence, endurance of dynasties. Here's the problem. How can Moses talk about the, our end, our frailty, our finality, and at the same time talk about God's love towards us? We as the objects of his love, but God's love towards us being endless. Do you see that? How is it possible that a boundless God can love people in an everlasting way that are finite and that are bounded? At some point, the boundlessness of God, the infinite love of God, has to meet with the boundaries of our boundedness, our finiteness, because of sin and judgment, and it has to redraw those boundaries. Moses anticipates that. The only problem here is that Moses still equates or or counts our death and assigns it to the reality of judgment. And trust me, Moses knew this better than anybody, right? Moses lived in the generation that was, because of their sin and rebellion against God, on their way to the promised land, they could never transgress the boundaries of the promised land. They were assigned to die alone in the wilderness. And by their death, God would open up the promised land to the generations that came after them. What does that tell us? What does that tell us? What does Moses' own story tell us about how God might redraw the boundaries in order to love us in a boundless way? Well, you know the story of Jesus, the story of love incarnate, the story of the steadfast love of God, the eternal love of God becoming bounded in human form, the story of Jesus himself going to a cross, dying alone in the wilderness in order to open up the promised land to his people for all eternity, the eternal promised land. Anybody have a Bible on this morning? I need this. I don't have it with me because it was on the... Can I use your Bible? Yeah. Yeah. If you can, you can open up to John 13 or you can just listen here. I want you to listen 
to how John talks about Jesus in John 13. Here's what John says. So, Jesus knows he's going to die. And this is how Jesus numbers his own days. Okay, and we'll end here. Listen to how Jesus numbers his days. John 13, 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that means the hour of his death, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Think about that for a moment. I asked you the question at the very beginning, what would you do if you had three months to live? What did Jesus do knowing he had hours to live? How did he number his days? What was on his bucket list? John says it was you. The thing that Jesus was most concerned about, the thing that he most cared about, and the hours that he had left, and and the way that he numbered his own days, was you. Was loving you to the finale. Loving you to the end was loving you unto his own death in the wilderness in order to open up the boundary line of the promised land to you. Jesus says that by the grace of God, you don't have to, because of what I've done, grip white-knuckled to the days that you have left. I've redrawn the boundary line. You can open your hand in generosity. And you are free now to be generous and gracious and merciful in the time that I have given you and redrawing your boundary lines and to love others as I have loved you. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, thank you for our time. We pray, oh God, that you would give us wisdom. You would show us how to number our days um, according to the reality um, that they are bounded, but also to the reality that because of who Jesus is, because of what Moses anticipated in the steadfast love of God, making the objects of that love endless, that you would redraw the boundary lines for us and allow us to live, not as those who are just finite, but live as those um, who can be generous, just as Jesus has been generous to us with our time, our energy, the limits that you've even imposed on us. Lord, teach us to say with David that the boundary lines have fallen for us in pleasant places. Um, Indeed, we have a beautiful inheritance. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.